0: Live from the bridge at the Launchpad Studios in Huntington, New York, it's Sports Talk New York with your hosts, Mark Rosenman and A.J. Carter. Sports Talk New York is sponsored in part by Cardboard Memories, Clearview Long Island, the law firm of Decalator Cohen, and DePrisco, the Phoenix Tube Company, Pims Incorporated, fueling brand performance for 30 years, Prince Associates for all your insurance needs, and Soho Table Hockey. Here are your hosts, Mark and AJ.
1: Joining us now is a man who played 15 seasons in Major League Baseball for the Houston Astros, New York Yankees, St. Louis Cardinals, and the Texas Rangers, where he compiled a 293 lifetime batting average, which included 366 home runs, 422 doubles, 30 triples, 1,234 RBIs, and 1,146 runs scored. He is a six-time All-Star, World Series champion, as well as the winner of the National League Comeback Player of the Year Award with the St. Louis Cardinals in 2011. He currently is the head coach of the Houston Baptist Huskies baseball team. It is a pleasure to welcome the one and only, one of the killer bees, the big boom himself, Lance Berkman, the Sports Talk New York. Good morning, Lance. How you doing?
0: Good, Mark. How are you? Thanks for having me on.
1: It's absolutely a pleasure. Always great to catch up with you. You know, it's interesting for people that might not know, your athletic ability may be genetic as both your parents were really good athletes. Your mom, Cynthia, was a high school sprinter on the varsity track team. And your dad, Larry, played baseball at the University of Texas. You were a natural right-handed hitter growing up, but your dad would change that a bit. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah. You know, dad, uh, I don't know if you would call it good, Good foresight, or just being a baseball psycho, but he um, he recognized that I was a right a left-handed thrower and a right-handed hitter early on, and you know that's kind of an odd combination. You're limited with the positions you can play as a left-handed thrower, and right-handed hitters are kind of a dime a dozen. So he figured if I could throw left-handed, he might be able to teach me to hit left-handed, and so he set about making me a, a switch hitter and had me swinging left-handed as far back as I can remember, and. Ultimately, it kind of took over as my more dominant side, um, but it's just you know my dad thinking that hey one of these days it might be helpful if, if he can hit left-handed, and so um, that's how that came about. So so interesting.
1: So when you look back at all that hard work that you put in to becoming a switch hitter, and then you reflect on the fact that you turned out to be one of the greatest switch hitters in all of baseball. You're second only to Mickey Mantle in lifetime on base percentage and slugging percentage. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when, when you put it in that context?
0: Well, you know, it, it, they, they those guys that uh, I'm ahead of played a lot longer. So some of those counting the percentage statistics look better than maybe they, they really are. Uh, but it's certainly an honor to be mentioned in that company. And, you know, my dad's hero growing up was Mickey Mantle as, as a lot of, Men of his generation, um, and so he did his best to make me that kind of baseball player. He he made me play center field when I was a, a kid. He wouldn't let me play first base or pitch. He wanted me to be a switch hitting center fielder, and so um, you know that's that was kind of his dream for me. And and, um, and and it's based on you know obviously his love for Mickey Mantle. So whenever you hear that, it, it's kind of a, it's kind of a cool. Uh, full circle type deal, although obviously, you know, the Mick was in a class by himself.
1: Aside from teaching you to switch it, your dad did teach you about respecting umpires at an early age. He was your youth Little League coach. Um, and when you're an 11 year outfielder in Little League, your team, ironically named the Astros, lost the championship game to the Cubs in extra innings. The ump in that game blew call after call. Can you tell our listeners what happened as, as that game ended?
0: <laughs> well, yeah, that was uh, that was quite an episode. Uh, we had the, like you said, I mean, the umpiring. Obviously, looking back on it, what do you expect out of a little league umpire? But um, you know, the the final play of the game was the the way they scored the winning run. We had there was a ball hit to the outfield with a runner on second base, and we threw the ball to the plate, and our catcher caught the ball. And of course, back in those days, you know, there wasn't the slide rule or anything like that. So you could still run the catcher over and our catcher caught the ball and the the base runner ran him over uh, and, you know, well in front of the plate and didn't dislodge the ball. The catcher goes kind of sprawling, but hangs on to the ball and the kid touches home plate and the umpire said, yeah, he ran him over, but he didn't, he never touched him with his glove. And we were just, you know, incredulous that how can you have that kind of a collision at home plate and and not be touched by the ball, you know? And so uh, pandemonium ensued and, and everybody was, was yelling and the parents were were up in arms. And so I ran over and I started, (laughs) as I had seen on television, started kicking uh, dirt on the umpire and in my vehement protest and my dad, next thing I know, uh, had grabbed me by the scruff of the neck and he pinned me up against the dugout wall with his forearm and he basically let me know in no uncertain terms that that was unacceptable behavior regardless of the outcome. So I got the message pretty quick.
1: (laughs) So you have a standout high school career, um, feeding off a three-run home run performance in the Lockhart tournament as well as a game-tying right-handed three-run homer followed by a game-winning left-handed RBI single in a big game. Later that season, Rice University offered you a scholarship early in your senior year in high school where you end up batting 539, slugging percentage of 974, eight home runs, you drive in 30 runs. How much did knowing that you your your future was already you know predetermined going into part of that season, how much did that help you relax and, and just you know enjoy the game that senior year?
0: Well, I think you hit it. Uh, right on the head there I mean it, there was the the pressure was kind of off and y- you know when you're, when you're in high school and it really it kind of follows you throughout your career you're always trying to get to that next level so when you're in high school the most important thing in the world is to you know to get a chance to play in college and so um, after I knew that I was going to get a chance to play at Rice it, it did help me relax and you know I, I had never really put together a great high school season before that senior year uh, and some of that, you know, you're, you're faced with limited at-bats, and so if you happen to have, I remember I got into a little bit of a slump my sophomore year, and, uh, you know, there's just not enough time to make up the ground, and so uh, things like that happen to you, and and never had really been able to, you know, put put a great season on paper until my senior year, and I think a big part of that was just knowing that, hey, I'm, I'm going to be able to have at least an opportunity to play in college, and the pressure's off in that regard, and um you know we had a decent team and it was it was a lot of fun that senior year for sure
1: and you mentioned going to Rice at Rice you get to play for the legendary Wayne Graham as a freshman you're part of one of college baseball's all-time great trios Toronto Blue Jays center fielder Jose Cruz Jr Kansas City Royals left fielder Mark Quinn you guys batted back to back to back you're named the first-time all-American by Collegiate Baseball Magazine Baseball America and the Sporting News you're invited to visit the White House and have dinner with President Clinton along with the rest of the Baseball America honorees. What are some of your fondest memories of Coach Graham and your time at Rice?
0: Well, Coach Graham is is one of a kind, and, and you could make the case that he uh, is the greatest college baseball coach uh, to this point. Um, you know, he, he won five junior college national titles at San Jacinto. There in Houston, and then he goes to Rice, which you know, I, to put it into context, I mean Rice has 2,500 students. The the high school that I went to, my first two years of high school, had more students than the whole university. And it's a it's a private school. It's tough to get into. It's um, you know not known for sports for sure. Uh, and he was able to go there and with all of the limitations, um, you know, won a national championship in 2003. I think they went to six or seven College World Series in his tenure and. You know, just an incredible um, run of success there. And now that I'm a college coach, I look at that and I'm like, my goodness, I mean, how did this guy do it? But having played for him, uh, he was a a master psychologist, just really had an act for getting the most out of his players. I think he had a really good eye for talent. Um, And he he certainly made me uh, much tougher mentally than I was when I came in as a freshman. And that, that, that paid huge dividends uh, as I continued in my pro- professional career. And, you know, I don't know that I would have been as successful as a pro had Coach Graham not um, had not molded my mentality the way that he did when I was playing for him. So it was just a, a great experience for me, although a tough experience, to be sure. Uh, but it was what I needed, and, and, and he has uh, done me a great service in, in that he really was instrumental in molding um, my mental outlook on the game and, yeah, I was giving my dad credit for getting me started playing and, and teaching me the correct mechanics and respect for the game and all of those kinds of things. But it was almost like I went to a finishing school with Coach Graham, and so I'll always be grateful to him for that.
1: And your time there pays off. You forego your senior year at Rice. And on June 3rd, 1997, the Astros draft you with the 16th pick overall, first round of the amateur draft. What do you recall about that day and just the feeling when your name is called?
0: Well, it's a lot different back then than it is today. We uh, we were in Omaha because we had made it to the College World Series for the first time uh, in, in the history of Rice University. And I, my, my time there at Rice was really special because my freshman year, we went to a regional for the first time ever. Uh, my sophomore year, we won the Southwest Conference for the first and only time Rice had ever done that, went back to a regional, made it to the finals. And then my junior year, we won a regional and we won the WAC, uh, we moved to the Western Athletic Conference, won that, won a regional and then, you know, got to play in Omaha. So we had we were in Omaha and, and um you know, that was in the early, early days of the internet um where not everybody had access to it. And and my uncle is a um he works with computers, so he had a, a sort of a specialist knowledge of how to access the internet and followed the major league draft that year and we were I, would, I was sitting in a hotel room in Omaha with my future wife and my bro, my future brother-in-law and my mom and dad and we were waiting on a phone call and of course there was no you know the, the 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 access the accessibility of information today is much different and you know we were hearing all kind of things like you could be a first rounder it might be second or third we just you just didn't know so we we're just kind of sitting there waiting on a phone call um, and the phone rings and I've answered it in the hotel room. It's my uncle. And he said, well, are you glad to be staying at home? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, well, the Astros just drafted you in the first round, uh, number 16 pick overall. And I was like, what? And he, he's like, yeah. And, so I, my first thought when I heard that was, oh man, I mean, they got Jeff Bagwell. I'll never get to play, you know, I'll never get, make it to the big leagues. Um, because, of course, Bagwell at that time was at the peak of his powers and, you know, perennial MVP candidate at first base. And then I thought, well, you know, I'll just have to learn how to play the outfield or I have to go back to the outfield because I'd played some at Rice in the outfield. And and so, um, you know, that, those were kind of some things that were running through my head, but uh, obviously much different than, than it is today. I kind of found out secondhand, and about an hour later, the Astros ended up calling me, and Jerry Hunsicker said, hey, you know, we picked you uh, with our first-round pick. And, and so... Um, it was, it was neat because the people that were in the room, my mom and dad, like I said, my, the girl that I was dating at the time, which she's now my wife. We've been married for almost 24 years. And so, um, and then, you know, her brother, who was my teammate at Rice, uh, and it was just a, a good, uh, a good experience for me. But I just remember being on pins and needles. Obviously you're just sitting there for hours. It seems like waiting on the phone to ring and there's no information and you have no idea what's going on. And, and then you kind of find out all in a flurry what, what's happening. And so, it was uh, obviously something I'll never forget.
1: It's funny I'm just picturing
0: your uncle sitting
1: there with the the dial-up uh, internet and on yeah, serve, exactly what him, it was. following the draft. Mm-hmm. That's hysterical. Yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what it was. Yeah. So you mentioned the, the transition to the outfield and you make your way up the Astros minor league ladder. In 98 the Astros promote you to Double-A Jackson. Uh, where we hit 24 home runs, batted 306, you make the Texas League All-Star team. Late in the season, you're called up to AAA, the the New Orleans team. You had three home runs in your first game there. New Orleans wins the AAA World Series at season's end. You're named MVP. Who was the one person in the Astros system that had the biggest impact on your career, and why?
0: Man, that's a great question. I mean, I, there were there were so many good people that that you know had a that had an influence on me. Um, a lot of it, it's just, it's weird. You know, you think about it at different times. I mean, I, one of the guys that stands out to me is Bill Burden. He was, he, and, he was our outfield instructor. Um, uh, Dave Engel, who was a, a hitting instructor, uh, kind of a roving hitting instructor back then that played in the big leagues. Uh, you know, guys, you just think back to George Orta was my double A hitting coach. Uh, so there was, I was around a lot of good ex professionals that, that were into coaching, um, you know, John Tamargo was our manager. Jim Pankovitz was a ma- was, a, was my manager, and all those guys had some impact. Like, I, I was able to learn and take away uh, Tony Pena as another guy, you know, that just – and you start, you know, taking a piece here, a piece there, and you add it to, to, to your base of knowledge, and you gain experience, and that's kind of how you develop as a player. So uh, the Astros had a great um, group of guys, not only the coaches, but also the players, I think. Like Billy Spires was a guy that kind of took me under his wing. Tim Bogar is another guy that really helped me when I was a young player. Um, and and then, you know, as you get a little bit more experience, Jeff Bagwell, um, watching Craig play. I mean, all those things have an impact on you and, and shape who you become as a player.
1: So that following season, you start this season in A. April 12th, you tear your meniscus in your left knee. You have surgery. A uh, little more than a month later, you're back in. Uh, and then July 16th, um, at that point you're hitting 303, eight home runs in 58 games. You're called up to replace the injured Carl Everett. What did you recall about that day? Who gave you the news that you're being called up? And what's, can you like, flash back to that moment when Larry Durker calls on you to pinch hit for Scott Ellerton in the seventh inning in a 1-1 tie? And what you remember, you know, when you told grab Grabba
0: back. <laughs> Well, that's uh, the, so the first the the story of the call-up is kind of interesting. um the in ninety nine, you know the two thousand was going to be an Olympic year. so in ninety nine, and it was the first year that they were going to allow professionals to compete in the Olympics. And so USA baseball was trying to put together uh, a squad that they were going to take to Sydney and compete in the two thousand Olympics. but in in order to be able to have that opportunity, there was a tournament that we had to win or finish. I can't remember. We had to finish, you know, somewhere, second, third, somewhere there, but you had to qualify for the Olympics. So they, in 99, they, they got a group of us together in Arizona, uh, to go and play in that tournament. I believe it was going to be in Canada, but, um, they, they let you take a break, like a two week break in the middle of the triple A season to go to Arizona to prepare for that. So, uh, my wife, we, we had been married that offseason in 98, heading into 99, and she was with me and we were in New Orleans. And so we, we flew from New Orleans to Phoenix uh, to go out to that little kind of mini camp for Team USA. And when we landed, uh, my cell phone had, you know, six or eight messages on it. And so I was like, well, this is kind of odd. So I I checked the messages, and one of them was from Jerry Hunsicker and he said, hey, we're calling you up for the big leagues. You need to get on a plane, you know, as quick as you can back to Houston. And so I was like, oh, my gosh. I mean, it was almost, you know, you kind of have this tingle go through your body. And it's almost like an out-of-body type experience. Mm. You can't believe that, you know, your dreams come true. And so um, I just remember making a flurry of phone calls. I called my dad. And, of course, you're trying to make travel arrangements. So we literally landed, like, went to the Team USA headquarters uh, because my stuff, I think they had sent it ahead. I got all my stuff. We got back in the cab and went back to the airport and, and then you know flew back to Houston and um, and so of course back then it was the Astrodome and I, I remember like not being able to figure out how to get into the Astrodome I was like where do we go you know like I <laughs> do I just go to the to the ticket window or do I is there a loading dock and so kind of getting those details squared away but um, it, it was it, it was just a the whole thing was very overwhelming because you walk in there and it was a, it was a veteran club. I think I was the youngest guy on the team at that time by like ten years. I mean, there there was a, very few other young players. There was a handful. Scott Ellison was a younger guy, and Bress Johnson was a younger guy, and Daryl Ward and, and guys like that. But uh, for the most part, I mean, you're you're dealing with a successful team. They were they had just won the Central two years in a row, um, 97 and 98, and, had a, and 98 was probably the best team the Astros ever put together outside of the one that, that won the World Series in 2017. You know, they had won 102 games, and they ended up with Randy Johnson, and they just had so many great players. So you're walking into a clubhouse of of older guys that have had a lot of success and just feel totally out of place. And um, I just remember feeling disjointed that whole year in 99. Every time I went to the plate, it was, uh, you know, there was a lot of pressure. I felt the need to to impress and to do something to justify my call-up. And uh, when Dirk looked down the bench and said, hey, you're pinch-hitting – I was like, oh my gosh, you know, so you walked up there, and and this has only happened to me maybe once or twice in my life, but, you know, you hear about people's knees feeling weak. I literally didn't feel like I could stand. Like, I was like, am I going to collapse in the batter's box? And my first at bat was against a left-handed pitcher named Justin Thompson, who was at that time, you know, really good, had good stuff, and he he threw me a first pitch breaking ball because there was first and second, nobody out, and, and it seemed like it, Scrape the roof of the Astrodome, and it landed, you know, just below the knees on the outside corner for a called strike. And I was like, "Oh my gosh, if that's a major league breaking ball, then I'm going to have a hard time hitting." And uh, anyway, ended up grounding into a double play, sort of an inauspicious beginning, killed the rally. I think we we still won the game, but uh, it, it certainly I didn't come in and <laughs> and and go like gangbusters from the very beginning. It was it was kind of a slow start. So.
1: So you get your first taste of postseason play in 2001, trip to the first World Series in 2005, falling to the White Sox in four games. What was your takeaway from that first World Series, and were you able to draw upon that six years later when you are a member of the Cardinals?
0: Oh, 100%. Um, you know, one reason why... Teams, or at least they used to value veteran guys, is because you know when you have those type of experiences, it helps you the next time you have them. And and, and you mentioned the 2001. You know, that was my first playoff experience. Even even though it was brief, you know we got swept by the Braves, which they they were kind of our nemesis. They were kind of the Astros' nemesis there in the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, it, it still it still was helpful because you kind of got to see what it was like to be in front of a big crowd and to play in those meaningful games in, in October. And uh, so then in you know in 2004 and five we uh, you know we had that run of playoff success and and that certainly carried over. You learn how to compete, you learn how to handle the pressure, um, you know. And having been through that, you realize okay, I'm going to survive this. And so it definitely helps calm you down when you get the, get another opportunity like we did in, in 2011. And really in 2010 with the Yankees, I mean. Um, You know, we got beat in the ALCS, but we beat the Twins in the ALDS, and and had had some postseason experience there. So it all sort of culminated in that 2011 year.
1: So it's interesting you mentioned the Yankees. So you grow up in the Astros organization. You play for them 12 years, 1592 games to be exact. July 31st, 2010, you're traded to the New York Yankees, where you serve both as a designated hitter and a backup first baseman, which was really important as during that season, you know, Mark DeSera went on the disabled list due to a hamstring injury, so you get to play a lot for them. Um, what's your initial reaction to being traded? And while you, know, you probably you, you did, you played the least amount of games in your career for the New York Yankees, what was it like being a member of one of the most iconic franchises in all of baseball?
0: Well, you know, the, the experience was, was kind of like, I mean, I, I, I remember feeling very uncomfortable twice in my career. Once is when I first got called up, uh, which, which we chronicled. But the second time is when I got traded because, you know, when you've been in a place for as long as I was in Houston – Uh, And you get traded anywhere, much less New York. You know, there's going to be a a learning curve. There's going to be an adjustment of getting comfortable with new teammates, new expectations, new environment, um, all of those things. And you know, you feel like uh, over those 12 years in Houston, I built up a lot of what I'll call, you know, sort of clutch capital. I'd come through a lot for them. I'd I'd had a lot of big hits. had done, you know, had produced a lot of good seasons for them. And so. Uh, if I were to struggle for the Astros, it's kind of like, oh well, you know, we know this guy's going to come around. But when you go into a new environment, you don't have any of that. You're starting from ground zero, kind of like you do when you're a rookie. So, you know, you're going into an environment that's already pretty tough, and you're trying to, you know, to prove that you belong there, and you want to make a contribution because you feel like, oh well, these guys, you know, they valued me enough to trade for me, so I want to, I want to produce for them. And, and I was. Already kind of mired in the worst season of my career. i had surgery in spring training that year with the Astros. I'd hurt, hurt my meniscus again uh, in a in a spring training drill and had surgery and never really got going and and just felt kind of off all year. And uh, when I came to New York, it, it, it certainly continued and. Um, but my experience with the team was amazing. I mean, nobody takes care of their players like the Yankees organization. It's a great organization from top to bottom. they got great people. Kevin Long is one of the best hitting coaches in the game. He was there. I had a great chance to to work with him. And and, uh, so, you know, just really enjoyed being on the team. Of course, being a Texan and and a Southerner, I was kind of a fish out of water in the city and and in Byron's. But as far as the Yankee organization goes, it's first class all the way, and you can see why they they have such a a long and strong track record of success. And so, yeah, I'm glad glad for the experience. I wish I'd have played a little bit better uh, in pinstripes, but but certainly, um, you know, having Andy Pettit, one of my best friends to this day, and and having the chance to play with him again, all of that was was. it was great, so um, I look back on that. Uh, you know, it's with mixed emotions because partly fondly, um, but also it was a really a tough time in my career. So um, learned a lot from it, and just glad I got a chance to do it. You
1: no, know, it's interesting. Obviously, here in New York, when we look at the Yankees probably with the East Coast bias. But you go from one historic franchise to another. December fourth, you signed an eight million dollar one year contract in the St. Louis Cardinals. And as it always seems to do, it works out for the Cardinals. That season, you hit your 350th career home run, which turned out to be the second furthest home run ever hit in the new Bush Stadium. You're one of the team leaders in batting average home runs RBI. You're named the NL Comeback Player of the Year. Finished seventh in the NL MVP voting. The sixth time you would finish inside the top ten, by the way. That year ends with you winning your first World Series championship as the Cardinals defeat the Texas Rangers in seven games. The Yankees get so much attention, but the Cardinals are also one of the most iconic and successful franchises in baseball history. What was it like being part of the Cardinal organization and playing for Tony La Russa and winning that World Series?
0: Well, there's there's actually a, a lot of similarities between the Cardinal organization and the Yankee organization. They they're, they both value professionalism highly. They they both have a expectation of winning. When you walk through the doors of both clubhouses, it's kind of like if you don't win the World Series, you didn't have a very good year. Um, you know, they they both have a passionate fan base that goes back generations. And I think that's the coolest thing. Is the to me the 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 best places to play in the game are those where the fan fandom is sort of sort of passed down from father to son or grandfather to father to son. I mean, there's, it goes back generations and there's a sense of ownership that the fans have in the, in the organization. And, and both New York and St. Louis have that kind of, um, they have that kind of following. The difference is there's a lot of other stuff going on in New York, whereas in, in St. Louis, I mean, the Cardinals are it. I mean, there is nothing else. And so, um, you, you there's sort of an extra texture or depth to their passion for the team, uh, that, that's unlike anywhere I've ever been. So uh, it was a, a, a tremendous experience for me. I felt right at home in St. Louis. I was back in the National League where I'd spent my whole career. I uh, was with a bunch of guys that that I had competed against, so there was a great deal of familiarity for me, um, you know, with the Cardinals organization. And, and of course, getting to play for Tony La Russa, who, in my opinion, is, is the best. I mean, he's, you know, I, I think he might be the best manager in the history of, of Major League Baseball, but he's certainly – Uh, right up there in that conversation and it just that was a great experience so um, and clearly I mean anytime you have a good season and you end up winning the World Series you can't beat that so for sure the highlight of my career was that 2011 World Series victory and above and beyond the, you know, the, the title of World Series champion is the guys that we, I was able to compete with. That was one of my favorite teams I was ever on. Uh, just so many good guys and good friends that I still have to this day from that team. So it was a, it was a special year, and, and St. Louis is a special place to play baseball.
1: So you mentioned the fact that with that fan base, you know, it, it's handed down from generation to generation. And interestingly enough, um, there were teammates that you played with there They're still playing for the Cardinals, uh, two of them right now, and there might even be a third that comes back. So, you know, you play with Yadier Molina, Adam Wainwright, and Albert Pujols. Could you ever in your wildest dreams think that they'd still be playing 10 years later after you were teammates with them?
0: Well, you know, Yadier would be the only one of those that I thought would have a chance to do that. And so uh, the others, you know, I – I'm I'm actually not that surprised about Adam because you know, and I give these guys a hard time about. I mean, pitchers work once every five days. I mean, come on, you know, <laughs> like it's thirty-five, forty starts a year. You could do that until you're you know forty-five. Uh, so uh, anyway, I, you know, I, it is it's remarkable that that they have had as long a run. But they, those are you know, to me, three Hall of Fame. Obviously, two of them for sure Hall of Famers, and I think Wayno. I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of speaking out of turn. I don't know what his career numbers are, but I, but in my opinion, he's a Hall of Fame competitor. He's, he's got the ability to be a Hall of Famer. You know, I don't know how the voters would, would look at his career numbers, but in my book, he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, so, you are you know, you're talking about two guys that are going to be first ballot guys and another guy that should be in there. Uh, and longevity is a part of that. So, um, part of me is kind of surprised, but the other part's like, hey, it makes perfect sense. It's unbelievable.
1: So you finish out your career with the Texas Rangers on October 31st. The Rangers decline your option, makes you a free agent. January 29th, 2014, you decide to retire. Um, you sign a one-day contract with the Astros to officially retire as a member of the Astros on April 5th, 2014. Why was that important to you?
0: Well, it's actually it's funny. It's a funny story because I hadn't I hadn't really thought about it because I'd always been like, hey, I don't, you know, when I retire, that's it. They're just not going to see me at the ballpark anymore, and and that's that'll be the end of that. Um, but Roy called me Oswalt and he said, hey man, you know, why don't we do this? And and so between his influence and of course I think the Astros were uh, were really wanting to do that, and and I greatly appreciate their efforts and and wanting me to retire as an Astro and being willing to, you know, orchestrate that, that one day contract. Reed Ryan was one of the guys that was a driving force behind that. Uh, I thought, you know, this would be really cool. Something to do to kind of bring it back full circle and, uh, and, and finish where you start. And even if it's in a symbolic and ceremonial way. Um, but it was, it was really neat to go, to go back and, um, you know, just be in front of the fans again, and be back on the field where there were so many good memories. It was, uh, it was, there was a lot of emotion. So uh, I'll look back on that that day fondly. You know, you mentioned Adam Wainwright in the Hall of Fame. It's
1: interesting. Right now, Adam Wainwright sits with, I believe, like 184 career wins. Years ago, 300 was a magic number. Obviously, in the age of that the numbers come down quite a bit. You're a member of the Texas Hall of Fame as well as the Astros Hall of Fame. However, in your first year of eligibility for the Baseball Hall of Fame, somehow you only got 1.2% of the vote, not enough to keep you on the ballot, even though percentage-wise you would be arguably among the 30 best offensive players of all time your on-base percentage and slugging percentage would place you in the top 25 of all Hall of Famers. Your uh, OPS would be number 18 for the players in the Hall of Fame. All of which you know, comes on the fact that you did that in an era, like, you did it clean, in an era where some numbers were not. Were you surprised by the vote? And do you think that the system for the Hall of Fame needs to be changed?
0: I mean, I was, I don't know, surprised or I was disappointed because I, I felt like, I, look, I mean, here's the reality is I'm not saying I'm a Hall of Famer. I mean, I'm definitely borderline at best. I mean, that that's one of those deals where, you know, that's what makes baseball fun because there's these debates about statistics and it, I think it makes the sport unique in that regard. So uh, I'm not, don't, don't mishear what I'm saying. But I was a little bit surprised based on some of the things that you referenced that, that, that I wasn't on the ballot at least for another year or two um but hey you know like if you're not all of famer you're not all of famer and you just move on from it so I I feel like uh you know that that had I been able to stay healthy and, and play a few more productive seasons I would have a better case and you know might have gotten an opportunity to to stay on that ballot a little bit longer and um I, I also know that there's a lot of guys and is one of them I mean it's a, he's a great example there there are guys that I look at it as like, you know, this guy's a Hall of Famer. He's the best in the game for a long, you know, say ten years. He's he's the the players know it's like, okay, who do I not want to face when when there's a big game? And Adam Wainwright is at the very top of that list. And so I don't care what his counting statistics end up being. I just know from a competitor standpoint, there are guys like a Jeff Kent, like a Jim Edmonds, like a you know Andrew Jones. Like these are guys that. I don't want to see these guys to plate if I'm, if I'm on the, uh, the opposition, these are the best hitters in the game for a period of time. And they're the, at the very top. So I know the hall of fame is supposed to to be the best of the best of all time, but I can only base my opinions on guys that I actually saw and competed against. And you know, there's a lot of guys that aren't in the hall of fame and that may not get into the hall of fame. But in my book, they're hall of famers because I know what I felt like when I was competing against them. And so, um, it, it's, it's, I don't, you know, this, this is probably a conversation for a whole nother show. Uh, and I'm probably ill qualified to talk about, you know, what should change as far as the process goes. But I do think that there should be some sort of player input, uh, of the guys that are, that, that competed in the same era. And uh, I think you would, there, it would be interesting to, t- if you took a poll of like, okay, from 2000 to 2012 or whatever, how, whatever the length of time is, you know, just hold the guys that played and, and see who they come up with. And I'm not saying they get to determine it, but that could be a piece of the puzzle. That might be an adjustment that um, that they could make. And, of course, the, I think the Veterans Committee tries to address some of that. So uh, I don't think there's a perfect way to do it. And you know, it's kind of a time-honored thing. And, and, and at the end of the day, if you want to be a Hall of Famer, you got to hit 500 homers or get 3,000 hits or win 300 games, and you, you know you're going to be in. So it, in some ways it's, it's inherently fair.
1: Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure Carlos Beltran would vote for Adam Wainwright if he had it so. That's for sure. Oh, um, yeah, yeah. The interesting thing is, you mentioned that you would think that you would stay on the ballot longer. Well, this is the one thing that always irks me. Is like, and you said it. If you're a Hall of Famer, you're a Hall of Famer. I don't believe a guy needs to stay on the ballot ten years. You know, and then all of a sudden, nine years he's not a Hall of Famer. In the tenth year, he hasn't gotten another hit in those nine years, but somehow all of a sudden he's a Hall of Famer. I, I just never thought that.
0: Um, so Well, you know, I, I do think, well, it, it, and not to disagree with what you're saying, because I think there's validity to it, but I do think that sometimes it requires a little bit of marinating for people to appreciate the the, the type of career that a player had. And, and as an example, you know, 30 years ago, batting average was like the, the statistic that people use to judge, that, is this guy a good hitter or not? But Since, statistics like OPS have have been proven to be a a better predictor of offensive prowess. And so, you know, the way that the statistics are viewed has changed a little bit. And, of course, I think the steroid area has, has some things to say about you know what what Hall of Fame statistics are, because you've got some guys that have put up eye popping numbers that skew everybody else's. And so, I think things like that happen where maybe some time letting some time go by and, and kind of letting a player's career marinate a bit is is a is a decent policy. Although I understand what you're saying. You know, there's guys that hey, is this guy a Hall of Famer, yes or no? And if you can't say yes immediately, then he probably shouldn't go in. So,
1: yeah, the fact that Tony Oliva had to wait so long, is just uh, its unbelievable. Um, you know, you spent your post-playing career coaching. You're currently the head coach uh, at Houston Baptist, like we mentioned. Uh, you played, aside from your father, some pretty high-profile managers in your career. Wayne Graham, Larry Durker, Jimmy Williams, Joe Girardi, Tony Garusa, just to name a few. Which is the voice you hear most when either running a practice or in a game that you hear in your head?
0: I mean, it's, it's my dad, but a close second would be Coach Graham. I mean, <laughs> those two guys, like I said, they they had the biggest Im- impact on me. And, and you know, I hear my dad because I feel I feel like, foundationally, morally, I mean, he's my hero. You know, like he sets the standard, and and many many of the things that he taught me when I was growing up are just ingrained in who I am as a as a man and as a human being. So. Um, he would have, he would certainly have the biggest influence, but but as far as like, you know, coaching wise, Coach Graham, I hear his voice all the time, he, you know, he said things to me that I still say to our players and use, I mean, he would say things like, you know, have a meeting with yourself, you know, he'd demand that you go home and look in the mirror and be really honest with yourself about your performance and about your preparation and and those kind of things, and and I still, still hear him, you know, imploring us to do that.
1: You know, it's interesting. This story has stuck with me for years.
0: I remember Dan
1: Duquette said that in one spring training, they brought Eddie Murray in. And Eddie Murray was trying to teach some of these minor leaguers some work in the cage. And, you know, some young you know prospect said, listen, they drafted me because this is what I do and this is the way I do it. And um, I, I think it was Buck Showalter walked over to the guy and gave that, that prospect, you know, homework. He says... That guy that was just telling you was Eddie Murray, I need you need to go back and you need to do a book report on Eddie Murray. And then the kid came back and realized who Eddie Murray was and realized, all right, maybe I can get some wisdom from him. You're coaching a lot of young men now um, that some of them might not even know who you were. Uh, What are some of the obstacles that you need to overcome, you know, in relating to to a young player that throughout his career, he's probably been the best player in his town, and now he's at the college game where he's no longer the big fish in in the pond. I think
0: the the biggest challenge in coaching today is just, you know, you can't coach kids the same way that, that I was coached as far as... You know the the yelling and screaming and the they they just they're just it's just different. I mean society's different, um, and that kind of is what it is. So you a perfect example is I can never ever remember in my life if Coach Graham told me to do something, wanting to know the reason why. I mean if he just said hey you know run down there and touch the foul pole and come back, I mean you were off like a shot without even thinking about it. But you know the kids today, they want to know the why behind everything. So do this. Well, why why are we doing this? You know, and and that kind of drives me crazy. Um, but that's how they that's how they've been raised. You know, there there's used to be like because I said so was a legitimate response from your mom and dad whenever you were you know like why am I doing this because I told you to and then okay after a while you get that. But we don't have as much of that anymore. So the way you handle players has changed. The other thing I think is a challenge for for these players is the attention span, the ability to concentrate seems like it's waned a bit. And I think part of that is because of our accessibility to social media and constant entertainment. I mean, you, if you just, it's funny, I'll sit back and I'll watch these guys and they, they have their phones out all the time, of course. And, and it's not like they're, they have their phones out and they're reading an article or they're, you know, looking at something for any length of time. I mean, it's literally like look for three seconds, swipe, 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 swipe onto the next, onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. next, 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 And, and they just, you know, baseball is a sport that requires sustained concentration. And I don't think, I don't think guys understand how to do that. I think they, they, you know, they, they concentrate in, in about three second bursts on, on what they're doing and then they're on to the next thing. And so it, it's created this culture of like, if, You know, an inability to sustain concentration. And baseball is a long. You know, you don't have to concentrate as hard as you can for three straight hours, but you have to be engaged in the competition the entire time the game's going on, or something bad is going to happen. And I think that mental engagement is tougher for kids to get to. Uh, again, because of the, the things that they're subjected to as they're growing up. So, I mean, those are some of the challenges that we try to overcome. And I'm not, you know, it's not like, oh, back in my day it was so much better. It's just different. And you have to acknowledge the differences, and you have to try to make adjustments and allow for those differences. And then you have to figure out a way to overcome some of the things that are detrimental to good baseball performance. And, and that's uh, the art of coaching. So we're in the middle of learning the best ways to do that. Of course, being this being my first year, I'm, I'm learning at the same time the kids are learning from me. So... Um, I'm excited about the challenge, and that's why I love it because it is a challenge.
1: Interesting, you mentioned the attention span I remember Todd Pratt told me that years ago some of his greatest lessons were after a game in the locker room talking amongst players. And he's a coach now, and he says the kids get in the locker room and instantly they go to their locker, grab their phones, and sit down and just are on their phones and they're never talking the game anymore. And he says, and that that was a big part of his learning through the minors and all the way up was talking the game after the game. And he says, that's one of the things that is was lacking now as well. Um, lastly, you know, you look at the guys who are getting jobs in the majors so many of them have absolutely no managerial experience whatsoever you know you take a look you've been coaching since your, your retirement um is managing in the big league something you would like to do and is it somewhat frustrating that guys with
0: no experience at all are getting jobs in the bigs well I mean yes. Yeah, the first first answer is easy yes I mean it's definitely something that I'd be interested in doing um at some point in the future um the second part, you know, I mean, heck, I would be a guy with no managerial experience if I got hired to do it. So uh, I do think that, that there is a value to have having had playing experience because, you know, as, as much as the game is is driven by numbers and analytics, there's still a human component. It's a human game and the, the emotions are real. And, and I'm not saying that you had to have experienced those emotions uh, in order to be a good leader. Because that's essentially what you want as a manager is you want a good leader. Um, but I do think it, it is a, it is another piece of the pie that can be helpful. And so, you know, if I've stood in the batter's box in a big spot and I understand the emotions and the things that players are thinking and what they're feeling and, and the fallout from that when it doesn't go right. I mean, if you have a, a firsthand experience of that, it makes you a better leader. And so, um, I do think that the game has, the pendulum has swung a little bit too far to the analytic side. I think it needs to swing back a little bit more to the experience, the baseball experience side, but I think there's a sweet spot somewhere in the middle where you're, you know, where you're using the the talents and abilities of these people that have, that are really smart, that have come up with some of these things that are very helpful. Um, but you don't discount some of the playing experience and the, and the managerial experience that kind of old school baseball people have. So uh, to me, the organizations that are doing it well are the ones that kind of marry those two concepts, where you have a lot of information, a lot of input, a lot of analytics, but you also have an acknowledgement that the human side of the game is still where the rubber meets the road. That's who's playing. It's not robots. It's not, you know, it's not a science project. I mean, these are real people, and uh, you have to acknowledge that there's emotion. There's, you know, all of these things that come into play, um, and who better to, to help the players cope with those type of things than the people that have been through it before. So um, that's an interesting, again, probably a broader discussion, uh, the role of analytics and how it's kind of taken over and, uh, and all of that. But I do, I think it's both. I mean, I think you have to, you have to have both.
1: Awesome, Lance. Thanks so much for your time this morning. More importantly, for everything you did on and off the field, we could have done an entire show, just on all your charitable work, which actually earned you a Roberto Clemente award in 2008. Uh, great catching up with you. Hopefully one day you will be able to catch up with you in a major league dugout as a manager somewhere. Uh, love speaking to you today for sure.
0: Oh, Thanks, Mark. I really appreciate it.
1: Our pleasure. Lance Berkman, six-time All-Star, World Series Camp 2011 National League Comeback Player of the Year.